0: You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all
1: major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for
2: more information. Hello, and welcome to Canada's Court, a podcast presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. My name is Rick Frank and I'm an associate lawyer with photo law practicing criminal defense in Toronto. Today we are hearing the case of Jacob Charles Badger and Her Majesty the Queen, which is an appeal as of right from the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan. The appellant, Mr. Badger, was charged with the attempted murder of Mr. Jody Ray. The two knew each other because the appellant was friends with Mr. Ray's sister. The appellant was at the Ray residence the night of the shooting, but left and said he would return later. Less than 10 minutes later, Mr. Ray responded to a knock at the door and two men wearing masks entered the residence. One of the two masked men pointed a double-barrel shotgun at Mr. Ray and a struggle ensued. During the struggle, Mr. Ray was shot. Mr. Ray's mother called 911 and Mr. Ray's heard saying on that call that Jake from State Farm, a nickname for the appellant, was the one who shot him. The appellant was found nearby the residence in apparent distress and was arrested. Mr. Ray, while being taken into the ambulance, pointed to the appellant and claimed that he was the one who shot him. Mr. Ray was intoxicated at the time of these utterances. The main issue at trial was the identity of the shooter. Mr. Ray changed his story and testified at trial that he did not know who shot him. He testified that he had a faulty memory from that night. No one else was able to identify the shooter. The admissibility of Mr. Ray's two spontaneous utterances, pointing the finger at the appellant, was challenged by the defense. The trial judge found that the spontaneous utterances were admissible for the truth of their contents. He then held that it was the appellant who shot Mr. Ray, convicting him of aggravated assault but acquitting him of attempted murder. Mr. Badger appealed his convictions to the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan on three grounds. First, that the trial judge erred in admitting Mr. Ray's spontaneous utterances into evidence. Second, that the trial judge erred in assessing his alibi evidence. And third, that the trial judge erred in his assessment of the identification evidence. The majority of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan upheld the conviction and dismissed the appeal on all three grounds. On the first ground, the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge applied the correct test, carefully considered all of the circumstances, and determined the utterances were admissible at trial. On the second ground, the Court of Appeal found that there was no error in the trial judge's treatment of the alibi evidence. On the last ground, the Court of Appeal found that the trial judge did not err in his assessment on the identification evidence. Justice Kalmakoff of the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan dissented, he would have ordered a new trial based on the third ground, namely the assessment of the identification evidence. He found the trial judge's reasons did not subject the identification evidence to the scrutiny the law requires and that the verdict was tainted. At the Supreme Court of Canada, the appellant asked for a new trial. The sole issue on appeal is whether the trial judge made a legal error in his assessment of the identification evidence.
3: Yes, good morning, everyone. This is the matter of Joseph Charles Badger versus Her Majesty the Queen, uh, Thomas Hines and Zachary Carter for the appellant, and Grace Hessian David for the respondent. Yes, Mr. Hines.
1: Thank you, Justice Moldaver, and good morning, Justices. Uh, This appeal is about eyewitness identification evidence. Uh, What makes this case a little unusual in our submission is that the identification evidence at issue uh, were out-of-court statements, spontaneous utterances uh, from the complainant who, at trial, had said he didn't know who attacked him. That issue for you today is whether the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal was correct in holding that the trial judge did not fail to properly evaluate the reliability of the identification evidence in this case. In our submission, and substantially for the reasons of the dissenting justice, Justice Kalmakoff at the Court of Appeal, uh, we respectfully submit today that the trial judge did not analyze the identification evidence in this case to the extent required by law. I propose to make three brief arguments for you today about why the trial judge's analysis was lacking and the majority of the Court of Appeal was wrong not to interfere. Uh, But before I do that, I wanna make two things clear at the outset. Uh, First, we appreciate the evidence of familiarity between Mr. Badger and the complainant in this case. We understand that was uh, part of the record. Where we're going to disagree about at the end of the day is uh, the extent of that familiarity and whether it completely removed the need to conduct an analysis of the reliability of the identification evidence under the traditional framework. Second, we also recognize that the trial judge analyzed the evidence of the complainant's intoxication and how that could affect the reliability of his spontaneous utterances. What we go on to say is that uh, that's not a proxy for an assessment of the reliability of uh, the identification evidence either. But it, uh, was, that, but it was the focus of the submissions on reliability, was it not? It was the focus, uh, but in my submission, it wasn't the only uh, argument. It was definitely the focus. I agree with that. Uh, but I mean, I've read, I've read
4: the argument. I don't really see other sort of indicia of reliability being advanced in in, in any kind of sort of substantial way. It, it, it really was all about intoxication, intoxication, intoxication.
1: That's the, the bulk of the argument. I would uh, respectfully point you, Justice Brown, to... Uh, pages 164 and 165 of the record the closing arguments that you'd find at uh, pages 133 and 132 of the trial transcripts that Starting from about lines 32 on pages uh, T332, you've got trial counsel flagging. This is a case about identity identity evidence. Uh, There's no sworn evidence about that. And then it goes on to briefly at page T333, lines 6 to 7, Court needs to be very cautious about identity evidence,
4: right? And then we hear all about well, Shannon raised the most sober person, um, and and then in the ne- you know in the next paragraph, and then the next paragraph is um, you know uh, Badger is very drunk. What falls from that? And then the following paragraph didn't give any indication I Believe Mr. Badger, said not know people where he was too drunk. You're right. There's a general statement about reliability, but the particularization of it is, is, as far as I can tell, entirely, if not almost entirely, focused on intoxication.
1: Yeah, and that's fair. And that's why I raised it at the outset to say that was uh, trial counsel's, the focus of the argument. And my response is to you, Justice Brown, that it's still put out there by trial counsel that identification is an issue, uh, identification evidence is um, as trial counsel put it the court needs to be very cautious about it so while trial counsel went on to spend the, the submissions focused on intoxication uh, i say it's uh, not totally abandoned in terms of an argument about the traditional concerns about uh, uh, identification evidence and the dangers of it uh, such that
3: uh, just before you go on though The Court of Appeal majority judgment, of course, at paragraph 74, picks up on what Justice Brown just said, or Justice Brown picks up on what they said. It's not surprising that the trial judge's reliability analysis focused on his level of intoxication, etc. That was the main argument raised by the defense. And then, I don't think we can get around this so easy, because when the Crown gave its argument at trial and now before this court on appeal. But, but the Crown took a very different approach and said, look at the circumstantial evidence. Look at this piece. Look at that piece. Look at this one. Look at that one. And said, in effect, each one individually can't be given too much, necessarily too much weight. But when you look at the body of evidence, it all goes to support the issue that the identification was that of Mr. Badger, and it was accurate. Now, I don't see in the reply by the defense at trial, correct me if I'm wrong, there might have been a little tiny bit about all this, the whole theory of the crown at trial, but virtually nothing. So I guess this is a long way to say, can we really fault the trial judge for focusing on drunkenness as he did? when in fact that was the focus?
1: Well, that's our argument today that uh, despite arguments from trial counsel and uh, the narrowing of the issue, uh, we do submit the trial judge should have gone on to conduct a more fulsome analysis of identification evidence because of the the well-known dangers associated with identification evidence. And... So again, I appreciate at the outset that that's the framing of the argument, um, but in our submission, um, we'll make three points today about why uh, the trial judge's analysis here was lacking. Just in a, in a nutshell, where I'd propose to be going would be firstly that recognition evidence is just a form of identification evidence and is subject to the same concerns, that the record didn't provide an adequate Evidential basis uh, to evaluate the complainant's bare recognition evidence. And thirdly, that the uh, external evidence from the complainant uh, ought to have been uh, explicitly considered. So on our first point, we say that uh, recognition evidence is just one type of identification evidence, eyewitness identification evidence. Uh, it's not different from eyewitness identification evidence. It's subject to the same frailties and the same risks. And those risks are well known that an honest but convincing witness can simply be mistaken about the identification. So in these circumstances where you had these two out-of-court statements that uh, trial counsel argued were unreliable, uh, the concern was for us that Uh, The eyewitness identification evidence is an unreliable form of opinion evidence, and the triers of fact can place undue weight uh, on those statements. In this case, we say that still arises even with the evidence of recognition that the familiarity or the level of familiarity between Mr. Badger and uh, the complainant didn't uh, provide a sufficient basis to not discuss the uh, dangers of eyewitness identification evidence.
3: Well, we know that the complainant. Uh, we know that the complainant was uh, kind of, uh, according to the trial judge, uh, not uh, telling it all. Shall we say, A very reluctant witness. One thing we do know is that your client, Mr. Badger, was wearing the same clothes when he came back on his own evidence that he was wearing when he left no more than 10 minutes earlier, in in around 10 minutes is when, when the allegation is that the people arrive at the door. And it just so happens that Mr. Badger claims that he couldn't have been there because he was with a man and a woman. And lo and behold, who shows up at the door, masked, not the woman, but two men. Now, you know, you can look at this picture, you can look at things like that. And 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 the fact that Mr. Badger shows up in the yard shortly afterwards, after this is all said and done, the trial judge found that he had opportunity, which again goes to identification. I mean, it seems to me you got to look at the package here, not only the package, but but sort of what it was that the trial judge was asked to focus on and did focus on.
1: I appreciate that, uh, Justice Moldaver. Um, what i i'd suggest is that um, the trial judge did do that to some extent that is reflected more in his analysis on say the gunshot residue evidence, but that once he discarded or gave no weight to the gunshot residue evidence um, there 's nothing sort of beyond that the trial judge wasn 't relying on uh, well he mentions the the coming and going but he's not uh, flagging say the the clothing that was being worn and in our submission the circumstances that we had at issue here uh, were particularly concerning because they they didn't lend themselves well uh, to a reliable reliable conditions for observation and so that's our concern about uh, the assessment that the trial judge did and we say didn't do about the spontaneous utterances.
5: I think it would help me if you could um, just recap, what are the circumstances that you rely on to suggest that the um, eyewitness identification was not reliable?
1: So uh, this is a case, Justice Kyrkastanis, where we're relying on the Uh, Evidence where you had two intruders who were completely masked. You had a a shotgun that was brandished at the complainant at close range. Uh, There was no uh, evidence that the intruders said anything. You had a, a, based on my assessment of the record, a brief encounter at the doorway between the assailant and the complainant and, and in my submission, that would undoubtedly had created a pressure-filled, highly stressful situation in which any person uh, in the complainant's shoes uh, would be uh, placed in, a, in an extremely difficult situation to make an accurate uh, observation for identification purposes. So those are the same uh, stressors that uh, make eyewitness identification evidence unreliable, so that even though you had evidence that Mr. Badger and the complainant were known to each other, we say that didn't remove uh, the need for a close analysis of the reliability of the eyewitness identification evidence. And in that respect, we're relying on a, a line of case law from the Ontario Court of Appeal, uh, in particular. Uh, The decision of Miller from 1998 that we cite at paragraph 52 of our factum for the proposition that recognition evidence uh, can require the same caution from triers of fact, uh, usually depending on their circumstances. And in the circumstances of the identification evidence here, you had something fairly comparable to Miller in, in my submission, where in Miller you had no face masks apparently. Uh, a very brief interaction of a robbery from an individual who said that they knew the assailant fairly reasonably well and despite that because of the other evidence uh, there was still a need for for extra consideration and caution from the identification evidence
5: Sir Heinz so, what about the uh, argument that the crown is making about uh, it's part of the circumstantial evidence uh, the timing, and uh, where uh, the accused was when he was arrested. He was still in the uh, vicinity of their house. Should we not take this into consideration? too Was the trial judge justified to take this into consideration with the other circumstances?
1: Yes, I, I have to concede it he, he, he was appropriately available to be considered. Uh, the trial judge did consider it as part of his analysis. That was one of the two sort of pieces of evidence that he uh, found to be compelling, the first being the spontaneous utterances and the second being the coming and going from the residence. So we have to concede that that evidence was there. Uh, it was uh, something the trial judge did and could consider, um, but it remains our position that uh, the, there were other factors that the trial judge ought to have considered here that bore on the reliability of the spontaneous utterances. So just to summarize our first point, uh, the familiarity between Mr. Badger and the complainant didn't remove the need uh, for further inquiry into the reliability of the uh, spontaneous utterances. And in my submission, Respectfully, the Court of Appeal, the majority of the Court of Appeal was wrong to discount those concerns just on the basis of familiarity. Briefly, on our second point, we say the record didn't provide an adequate evidential basis to evaluate the complainant's bare recognition evidence. And basically, we're asserting that there's no evidence about how or why the complainant had formed the opinion that Mr. Badger was one of the intruders. We say this is a concern uh, because the spontaneous utterances that identified Mr. Badger as one of the assailants are effectively opinion evidence. And those opinions required close examination because of the absence of an evidential basis for them directly. What I mean by that is to say that if an opinion is only as good as the facts upon which it's based, here, because we had out of court statements. Uh, There was a a lack or a dearth of evidence that went towards the basis for those statements, and they stood on their own out of context. Uh, There was really no answer to the important question in our view, what exactly did the complainant recognize about the assailant that allowed him to conclude that it was Mr. Badger? And I don't think it's something that's sufficient to just say, well, Black clothing, and Mr. Badger was said to be wearing similar clothing at the time that he was arrested. uh, Because the complainant isn't saying that himself, Uh, we also suggest that there ought to be consideration to the complainant's mother, who also had a brief opportunity to observe the masked individuals as they were bursting into the house, but that she had no idea about who those individuals were. So because we have spontaneous utterances because they're contradicted by the complainant's evidence at trial, they stood on their own as what we'd say were conclusory opinions about identification. They were what we'd say were bare recognition evidence. They had no descriptors, no real identifying features, no explanation as to how or why the complainant had come to the conclusion that he did. And so we say the majority of the court of appeal, uh, therefore applied the wrong analytical approach to assessing those spontaneous utterances, effectively determining, as the Crown suggests here, that the complainant must have seen something that allowed him to conclude one of the intruders was Mr. Badger without a sufficient basis to actually say that. And our submission is that that analysis effectively puts the cart before the horse, that it's wrong to reason backwards from the utterances are reliable to, therefore, the complainant must have seen something he recognized, and instead, uh, the appropriate analysis would have been to reason from the other direction: that is, there any anything in, in the basis for recognition here, or is it just bare recognition evidence? Uh, we say the basis for the identification opinion had to be carefully scrutinized in the circumstances and that the majority of the Court of Appeal therefore erred by reasoning backwards instead of conducting an appropriate inquiry into the evidential basis for the opinion. So just briefly turning to our third argument, we say that there ought to have been explicit consideration given to the complainant's mother's evidence, both as it related to an inconsistent statement and to the potential for tainting. These points arise out of the same evidence about the Statements The complainant was said to have made shortly around the time that the uh, police and EMS services were attending where the complainant is said to be saying something to the effect of, where's Jake? How come he didn't come help me? I want, to, sorry, ask for, you about, I want to ask
3: you about that briefly, if I can, because a lot of weight is put on this, you know, where was Jake at the time? Can you go to T-50 of the transcript, please? Of Evan's, or the transcript at trial, I think it's page 145 of the record. I'm looking at line 9. Yep. Okay. This is Ms. Shannon Ray giving evidence. What happened next once the police and the ambulance got there? So first of all, we're beyond. We're at the police and the ambulance long before, of course... The 911 call goes forward, and of course the trial judge noted this in argument, that there's no way that could be tainted, because there was no talk about Mr. Badger up to that point. But leaving that aside, let's listen to her evidence. When they got there, everybody was just freaked out, they were all flipping out, and then Jody mentioned, where the hell, where the hell was Jake? How come he didn't come help me? And I said, Jake is not here. And he goes, well, where the F is Jake? And I go, just listen to this, he just left through the side door right before the people knocked. Now, on nobody's version of the evidence could that have occurred, and yet here we are putting a lot of sort of eggs in the basket of this so-called what what the um, uh, complainant said to his mother when she's about as mixed up, it seems to me, As anybody in this piece? And, as I say, the trial judge addressed this in closing argument when he said, how do you account for what occurred in the 911 call? There was no tainting there. So it's a longer question, but you seem to place a lot of weight on this, and and I see it, quite frankly, as (laughs) something that, you know, the evidence on it is so shaky, I don't know that you'd give any weight
1: to it. Well, I disagree with you on that, uh, Justice Moldaver, um, just to say that uh, it was something that was discussed in closing argument about how it could uh, potentially impact the 911 call and the trial judge recognized that it, it could not. Uh, but it was still, I'd suggest, evidence that merited explicit consideration, whether it's because uh, the complainant's mother was herself mistaken about something or whether it was a uh, the complainant himself, who was uh, uh, not as certain as as uh, uh, might be said in the nine one one call, because uh, the he, there's this evidence about you know where is he? How come he's not here to help me? Which would be odd evidence to give after uh, being attacked and recognizing your attacker as that person to say how come they didn't then stop and help me. So the fact that it's not mentioned at all by the trial judge in his reasons, I think, raises that concern about whether he's simply discounting the mother's evidence entirely. I don't think that's a fair reading of the trial judge's reasons or whether the mother's evidence is unreliable um, or further in our argument about whether there's this inconsistent statement about identification uh, that uh, should have been addressed. So There's a a number of components there. Uh, Our short answer to you, Justice Moldaver, is that the trial judge was required to address it in some fashion if he was going to be saying these things that uh, uh, you're suggesting in your question. Uh, The second part that we flagged that the trial judge didn't address, although he addressed the potential for tainting in respect to the 911 call, there was the potential for tainting in our submission about the second spontaneous utterances that arose after this statement. So we'd say, again, that the mother's evidence, given that it raised the potential to place Mr. Badger's name in the complainant's mind, there should have been some consideration given to that in the trial judge's reasons, but the potential that statement had, in. For the bearing of the reliability on the spontaneous utterance going into the the EMS uh, uh, vehicle. So, our, just to summarize our, our second or sorry third point here, uh, the complainant's mother's evidence we say was relevant to the issue of identification. It merited explicit uh, comment by the trial judge. The trial judge didn't address it. Uh, we say the majority of the court of appeal was wrong in seeing no issue with this just on the basis of the exchange with defense counsel and closing argument. So to summarize our argument, in conclusion, we say the combined effect of these uh, failures uh, on the part of the trial judge raised a legal issue. Uh, we say the presumption of correct application can't save the day here, despite the framing of argument Identification was first and foremost uh, part of this case, that that the reliability of the spontaneous utterances was a significant issue in this case, and the trial judge ought to have more fulsomely addressed the reliability uh, of the identification evidence, even, even as a form of recognition evidence. So we say the majority of the Court of Appeal was wrong to decline to intervene on this ground, and given the dangers of eyewitness identification evidence, and the risk that evidence carries, the complainant's spontaneous utterances required special scrutiny in this case. Uh, So we're asking this court to uh, allow uh, Mr. Badger's appeal on this ground and order a new trial.
3: All right, does that complete your submissions? It does, thank you. All right, well, thank you very much, Mr. Hines. We'll hear from Ms. Hessian David, please.
0: Good morning, Justices of the Supreme Court of Canada. In Saskatchewan's opinion, this is a hearsay case, and the appellant is appealing on a very narrow issue. He is trying to turn a hearsay case involving a reluctant witness into an identification case with evidence given by a well-meaning but mistaken witness. He states his conviction is unsafe because there was not enough evidence going to the issue of identity. The majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal were correct in finding that the reliability review on the part of the trial judge was robust, and the admission of the utterances into the trial proper provided evidence of identity that was corroborated by significant circumstantial evidence. The bulk of my submissions today are going to focus basically on what I've provided you in tab one of the condensed book, that is the outline of Saskatchewan's argument. The respondent submits that on the facts of this case, an instruction going to the frailties of eyewitness evidence is simply not necessary on the facts. In fact, it's impractical. The spontaneous utterances were properly admitted during the voir dire, and the abundance of circumstantial evidence that followed in the trial proper confirmed the ultimate reliability of those utterances and secured this conviction. Let's first examine the totality of the evidence, going to identity in this case. When analyzing the proximity of time and place leading to opportunity on the part of the appellant, it is important to focus on the timeline, which can be gleaned from the record. And the Saskatchewan has, has taken some effort to try and, and reveal this through the contents of the condensed book. Tab two of the condensed book contains excerpts from the transcript. Roughly, Ten minutes before the shooting, the appellant had been in the house. He had been watching TV with the complainant's mother and sister. The complainant was in another bedroom of the house with his girlfriend, but he was just a few feet away. Paragraph 10 of the trial trial judge's voir dire ruling noted that the appellant had been focused on his cell phone just before he suddenly announced that he had to leave. Tab three of the condensed book contains the evidence of Shannon Ray, the complainant's mother, and she testified that only a few minutes later, possibly five, the knock came to the front door of her house. The next important point in the timeline was the first spontaneous utterance, which the trial judge put roughly at 3.23 a.m., and this occurred during the course of the 911 call, so it was all transcribed and recorded. The trial judge put the second utterance at 3.45 a.m. We review this timeline because sometime before 3.45 a.m., police constable Manns found the appellant at the south side of the house. The appellant was in distress. Tab two, and actually it's page four of the condensed book, has the evidence of police constable Manns on this point. And And the Saskatchewan submits this evidence is important because Constable Manns puts the sighting of the appellant as early as 3.30 in the morning, just seven minutes after the shooting. He called the appellant over. He noticed the appellant was crying or had been crying. He noticed what looked like blood on his running shoes, and he arrested the appellant for a weapons offense. Once again, this evidence puts the appellant at the side of the house as early as seven minutes after the shooting. The second spontaneous utterance occurred at 3.45, just 20 minutes after the shooting, as the appellant was being escorted by the police past the complainant in the ambulance. The timeline contains crucial evidence of opportunity and proximity, and the trial judge made those findings in paragraphs 33 and 35 of the trial. And Saskatchewan has provided that in tab five of the condensed book.
5: I'm sorry to interrupt because I... I don't think anybody's saying that, there, that the trial judge didn't consider uh, circumstantial evidence or that the, um, his, his finding of admissibility uh, about the spontaneous statements was incorrect. The argument here, I think, is a very specific one, which is simply whether the judge considered the reliability of the eyewitness identification evidence. And what counsel puts to you are just a number of factors, um, which he says the trial judge should have considered. Um, they're significant enough that they ought to have been mentioned. We're talking about the fact that it was a brief opportunity, um, that that there was uh, it was silence. It was in a brief, stressful uh, circumstance, that there were no uh, details at all about. The, either about the uh, characteristics of the person or about the circumstances in which the observation was made, that the mother had briefly observed the individuals and didn't recognize them, and that, of course, that statement that we were just taken to, where um, Jody asks, where is Jake? Uh, why didn't he help me? Um, where is he? So those are the factors that, uh, that, it, that are put to you, to say they went to the frailties of identification evidence, and that is something that the trial judge ought to have addressed and didn't. So I'd like to hear you on that. I, I accept that there is a body of circumstantial evidence, and I don't think that anybody's disputing that. Thank you, Justice
0: kerrick Yes, I will continue on because I do want to address the issue of the masking because I think that's crucial up front and centre. And, and I will say that uh, the evidence at the trial was that the attackers were masked. And in fact, Sharon, Shannon Ray testified that they were masked to the eyeballs. And uh, Saskatchewan submits that one thing our experience with the pandemic has made abundantly clear is that if you know someone and they are masked, and if you've just seen them a few minutes earlier in the day, it's likely if that you're you are giving. If you're them.
5: giving testimony, you're giving testimony to the wrong person. I have trouble (laughs) recognizing people who are masked, but don't give testimony, please, on that point.
0: All right. How about the fact that the uh, complainant and the uh, appellant fought over a loaded firearm? Uh, So Saskatchewan submits that there's a good chance that the identity of the attacker was revealed in the course of that struggle. Further, the complainant and the appellant, they knew each other, and the appellant had been at the same house and in the early morning hours, just before the attack. And the uh, complainant addressed his attackers uh, during the course of the struggle. We have that evidence from Shannon Ray. And he demeaned them. He called them little bitches, and he called them that for bringing a gun to the fight. So why is that important? Because there's no names. Ab- absolutely not. But there's, there's a, it's telling. Saskatchewan submits that that comment is telling because there's an agreement or there's an admission of a fight in existence. And so there's something going on that we don't know about that would lead to knowledge on the part of the complainant. Now, court's indulgence. Now, also, Saskatchewan submits to this court that we cannot forget that the trial judge had rejected the appellant's alibi. And while this is by no means evidence that goes to identity, it needs to be mentioned, as Justice Maldaver has already pointed out, the evidence of the appellant differed significantly from his original statement to the police. Because in his evidence on the stand, he stated he met up with two people, a man and a woman, Belinda Stanley and Charles Waypan. And he testified that these two people accompanied him back to his house where they had a visit. But both the complainant and the complainant's mother testified that three people came to the door during the early morning hours. And tab three of the condensed book contains this excerpt from the trial. The original statement given to the police upon the appellant's arrest just involved the appellant going straight home. So, the inconsistencies in the appellant's evidence led to a rejection of the alibi. But the fact remains that when he took the stand to defend himself, he made an admission that he met up with two people, a man and a woman. And this does fit the description of the number and sex of the individuals who came to the door that morning.
3: Mr. Wappen so, had been at the house earlier. I that's think, right. If I understand that right. right. And one You're other right. question You're I correct. have. As I understand it, uh, the mother, Shannon, made a lot of money at the casino that night. Is there any evidence that—do you know how much it was?
0: No, Justice Moldaver, Uh I don't believe there was any evidence on the record, but she had been successful. You're absolutely right.
3: All right. And there's no, no evidence, I take it, that, that the uh, appellant would have known that when she came home that she'd had a very successful night at the casino?
0: There's no evidence of that. There's no evidence that the appellant and his friend, Brandy, who was Shannon Ray's daughter and Shannon Ray were all together in one room watching television just before he left. But you're correct. There's no evidence uh, on the record that he would have known that. And that of course, had there been, that would have gone to motive, but no, there's no evidence that. At the end of the day, This was not an eyewitness identification case involving evidence of a fleeting glance. This case involved an entirely different fact situation. This case involved a reluctant witness who was not being forthright with the court. Tab five of the condensed book contains the quote from the Queen and BKG, where this court noted that central to the reliability determination in a fact situation like the one before you now, the trial judge has has an ability to observe the complainant, and to ascertain his demeanor while testifying. The trial judge had the complainant before him, which assisted in his assessment of the complainant's credibility. As the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal pointed out in paragraph 35 of their ruling, and again, that's in tab 5 of the condensed book, many of the reliability concerns in an eyewitness identification review are similar to the review required by the traditional hearsay exception. Now, the trial judge conducted a thorough examination of the reliability factors in connection with the spontaneous utterances. The respondent has provided all of the conclusions at tab 8, all of the trial judge's conclusion at tab 8 of the condensed book. At the voir dire phase, counsel for the appellant was solely concerned with the issue of intoxication the test provided for in the Queen in Rattan and its progeny allows for a focused review of the utterances in order to guard against the possibility of mistake, misrepresentation, motive to lie, and falsification. This test provides for an assurance of reliability. The requirement of contemporaneity mandates that the overwhelming events still predominate the mind of the declarant. The traditional test also requires that the trier fact Review the facts to ensure that there is little possibility of concoction or fabrication. Where the spontaneity of the statement is clear and the danger of fabrication is remote, the evidence should be received. The respondent has provided the tests set out by the trial judge in tab 7 of the condensed book and his conclusions in tab 8. Having admitted the utterances into the trial as evidence, and on the basis of the circumstantial evidence already spoken of this morning, the trial judge convicted the appellant, and the majority of the Court of Appeal found the conviction to be on solid ground. Now, in twelve tab 12 of the condensed book, the respondent has included paragraphs 74 to 76 of the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal's decision. These three paragraphs address the pink elephant in the room. The complainant's question to his mother right after the first spontaneous utterance. Where the hell was Jake? How come he didn't come to help me? The majority noted that the trial judge was aware of this piece of evidence. And in fact, defense counsel discussed the issue with the trial judge in her closing submissions. Making use of the timeline once again, This comment occurred after the first spontaneous utterance. Tab 11 of the condensed book provides the excerpts from the transcript showing this fact. It must be remembered that this comment on the part of the complainant occurred shortly after he had been shot and as as he was being treated for his wounds by the emergency response team. He was losing blood. The trial judge did not believe this comment to be of significant probative value The trial judge was aware of this evidence, he questioned appellant's counsel about it in closing submissions, he asked counsel when the comment arose in the timeline, and it was clear from the record that the trial judge was aware that the comment arose after the first spontaneous utterance and prior to the second. The respondent submits that the trial judge did not believe that this piece of evidence had great value and as such he did not need to explain the inconsistency in his reasons. A trier of fact can accept all, some, or none of a witness's evidence. And this piece of evidence came not from the complainant in his testimony at trial, but from the complainant's mother. The transcript excerpt was reproduced by the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal in their ruling, and it's provided in tab 12 of the condensed book on pages 21 and 22. The trial of fact is in a unique position to see and hear the evidence of the witnesses. Findings of credibility may be made with regard to other evidence in the case and may require some reference to contradictory evidence. What is required is that the reasons show the trial judge had seized the substance of the issues. In this trial, the trial judge had concerns with the credibility of not only the complainant, but the appellant as well. When it came to where the hell was Jake comment, the trial judge was not required to enter into a detailed account of this piece of evidence since he had obviously decided it was of little probative value and similar to the inconsistencies in the evidence of the sexual assault victim in the Queen and MER, which is provided in tab 12 of the condensed book. Now, at the commencement of these submissions, the respondent submitted that the central issue in this case is the admissibility of hearsay because of a witness that was less than forthright. It's not eyewitness identification evidence. By the time of the trial, the complainant claimed that he had no memory of the shooting. He could remember events in great detail up to the point of the knock on the front door of his house just prior to the shooting. But after that, He testified he was either too drunk to remember or he had no money or both, or memory memory or both. The trial judge found it odd that the complainant could remember in exact detail just the number of drinks he'd had that evening and how much he'd had to smoke. But he could remember nothing after he opened the front door of 1936 Winnipeg Street. The trial judge found the complainant to be reluctant. And this was a finding of fact on his part, and Saskatchewan submits it it is one of the central findings of this case. Tab 10 of the condensed book provides the trial judge's rulings on that very issue, both from the voir dire and in the trial proper. The importance of this finding simply escapes the appellant. The suggestion of witness contamination or mistake, which are important considerations in eyewitness identification cases, Those considerations are not relevant on the facts of this case. This was not a case where a well-meaning but mistaken witness provided identification evidence after a one-second fleeting glance. When the trial judge found the complainant to be reluctant, this was to say that the complainant knew the identity of his attacker, but he was reluctant or would not do so, would not commit that evidence to the record. The complainant was not cooperative, and identification in this case has to come through the spontaneous utterances and the circumstantial evidence at the end of the trial, hence the resort to hearsay and the traditional exception to the hearsay rule. Tab 13 of the condensed book provides an excerpt from the trial record, which suggests it was impossible for the complainant to have been subject to identification contamination. To begin with, the first utterance, Was spontaneous and not the result of a leading question. Second, when the family was showing the police the Facebook page of the appellant, they were all in the northwest bedroom of the home. The appellant was being treated by the emergency response team in the northeast bedroom. In essence, the complainant was always isolated from the rest of the family when the family discussed Jake from State Farm. With the police and the respondent, when the police and the respondent were together. Excuse me. <laughs> the respondent asks the rhetorical question. How could the complainant contaminate himself? Now, since adopting the principled approach to hearsay, this court has confirmed the continuing relevance of the traditional exceptions to the hearsay rule. The respondent has provided this court's instruction in the Queen and Star at tab six of the condensed book at trial the common law exception was never challenged. And it has never been argued that this is one of those rare cases alluded to in STAR where the appellant has indicated from the beginning that the traditional exception analysis does not provide a sufficient guarantee of reliability such that the principled exception must apply. In fact, at trial, the main thrust of the appellant's argument against the reliability of of the utterances was the issue of the complainant's intoxication. And that ruling on the part of the trial judge, has never been challenged. The appellant has not found fault with any aspects of the trial judge's ruling under the traditional exception to the hearsay rule. He is simply requesting that this court modify the rule in this case to include a further requirement, a self-instruction on the frailty of eyewitness identification evidence. Further, the appellant does not specify whether this instruction should occur at the threshold admissibility for deer phase, or at the end of the trial,
5: Miss David, can you help me? I'm still struggling to understand why the fact that this is hearsay and that it was admitted um, as hearsay, uh, what, what the bi- why that would in any way alleviate the necessity to be satisfied that the identification evidence, which is admitted as hearsay evidence, still has to be. Um, not just um, it has to not just sincere. It also has to be reliable. So I'm just struggling to understand why the fact that it's hearsay um, changes the need to uh, be satisfied about the reliability of the identification evidence, well, whether just it's hearsay to or not. Is, sorry,
0: I'm not saying for a second that because it's hearsay that we shouldn't be concerned about. Its reliability. That is certainly not what Saskatchewan is submitting. What we are submitting is we're in, a, we're in a situation where it had to be hearsay because the witness was reluctant. And in a perfect case where we could have a further identification such as the, the words were spoken, a timbre of voice was ascertained, the clothing was detailed, that would be wonderful in a perfect situation. But we all know that in criminal law, we don't have perfect situation and we don't have perfect facts. And we we take our cases as we get them. So in this particular case, what the respondent is saying is that what we had was a difficult witness. We had his utterances. And then we have to go to the uh, reliability of the circumstantial evidence. And all told, the trial judge felt that it was reliable.
4: I guess ultimately the question is whether it was all told. I mean, that's the issue, right? That's your, right. Your, yes, friend, your, friend, your friend is putting forward to you that it wasn't all told. It was some told.
0: That's correct, Justice right. Brown. That's exactly right. That's and, the case. And yeah. 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 <laughs> now, my closing paragraph. The respondent submits this proposed modification that he was re- requesting uh, is illogical and unnecessary. This was not an eyewitness identification case. And as such... This further requirement, as requested by the appellant, adds a layer of scrutiny that only serves to muddy any legal analysis that must be performed. And, and uh, Saskatchewan humbly refers you to the wording of the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal, who are of this same opinion. So, thank you for your kind attention and consideration. And the respondent, the Province of Saskatchewan, requests that you dismiss this appeal.
3: Uh, Is there any reply, Mr. Hines?
1: No, no reply. Thank you.
3: All right. Thank you. Um, The court will rise now, and I would ask counsel to, uh, uh, to remain available to us. Okay? Thank you. First, I want to thank counsel very much for their submissions. We have been able to resolve this matter, and I will give the reasons of the court. A majority of the court would dismiss the appeal substantially for the reasons of the majority of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal. Justices Kerr Katsanis and Martin would allow the appeal substantially for the reasons of the dissenting judge of the Court of Appeal. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to Canada's Court. Presented by the Criminal
0: Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.